Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. Welcome to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today, we're asking what it's like being a philosophy student with Madeline Lee, Sarah Rash, Therese Azure, and Samuel Amendelar. There's not a lot written about students by people who are still themselves students. There's not a great deal written about philosophy by people who aren't themselves philosophers. The end result is that almost all accounts of studying philosophy are after the fact and about the ideas, not the human experience of discovery. Only once in all my years as a designated learner did I ever feel the brute weight of knowledge while still in the classroom. In the spring of 1992, during a graduate seminar on, of all things, a book called The Foundations of Arithmetic, Burton Drebin, a shadowy and mythical figure in 20th century academic philosophy, Explain to us the problem of the one and the many. In order to know anything, you have to really know everything. But in order to know everything, you have to start by knowing something. This was too much for me, and I excused myself, went into the stairwell, and sat down until the dizziness stopped. Knowledge might very well be a closed system. But this had no real impact on my life. It didn't make me change a single behavior or rethink how I studied or moved me from a graduate student specialist to a generalist. Enlightenment is short-lived. Paul of Tarsus, the Buddha, Moses, the prophet Muhammad, their divine revelations might have motivated them personally, but it was their own argumentation, charisma, rhetorical skills, and sometimes military might that persuaded everyone else. We do not learn by revelation. We learn through slow, meticulous drudgery, alienating ourselves from who we were, fueled by faith in our possible future. As Aristotle put it in only one of the many possible English translations of the politics, those who are learning are not at play. Education is accompanied by pain. Philosophy as a subject is both egalitarian and elitist. Almost every introduction to philosophy class starts the same way. The instructor presents the students with platonic dialogue, explains that the ancient Greek philosopher still remains the most influential and important thinker in human history, and then asks everyone in the classroom to go home, read Plato, and report back on why he was wrong. The only thing more democratic than error is death. Philosophy students share this perverse arrogance. All of us think we're better than everyone else. That philosophy is the umbrella discipline. Every field of study has a philosophy of philosophy of science, philosophy of fashion, philosophy of sports. To be a PhD in sociology or music or engineering is to have earned a doctor of philosophy in that field. So surely a doctor of philosophy of chemistry can't hold a candle to the doctor of philosophy of philosophy. But with this arrogance comes a kind of vulnerability. First of all, philosophy stands alone, camouflaged from most practical knowledge. So the philosophy student is both respected as smart and maligned as naive. Getting an undergraduate degree in philosophy is a good and lucrative decision, but people act as if it's an insurmountable path to unemployment. Do you want fries with that? Second, philosophy has no accepted standard of rightness. No one has ever provided a satisfactory account of what a satisfactory account is. If there is an independent, objective way of determining which philosophical theory is correct, we haven't found it yet. 
So philosophy students can tell their friends who their favorite philosopher is or which school of thought speaks to them, but they can never share the certainty of the physicist or the confidence of the architect. To be a successful philosophy student is to revel in being lost. Finally, philosophy is burdened by the injustice of history. It has created, supported, and in many ways propagated the worst forms of sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, classism, and tenacious stubbornness. Yet no matter how many marginalized voices we include in our syllabi, it is still the case that almost every name in the history of ideas can be used to endorse the worst things we have ever done and the stuff that turned out even worse than that. So the philosophy student is crushed under the weight of falling in love with the proverbial dead white men. I myself am an Adam Smith scholar, <laughs> Adam Smith, the patron saint of capitalism, the defender of the bourgeois virtues, the name that celebrates the myopic entrepreneur and a million solipsistic stockholders. Can there be a bigger sin? On today's episode, we're going to talk with four of my current students, young folks who have taken multiple classes with me at the upper and lower levels and whom I have had the pleasure of knowing outside of class as well. They represent some typical aspects of undergraduate students and some of the best traits any professor could hope for. My goal is to ask them to describe what it's like to be a philosophy student while they are still studenting, to document their voices so that when I and they forget what it was like, the archive will remember. Their experiences are all their own, but each one will touch upon the universal, a hint of what a Platonist might call the form of student, student with a capital S. I'd like to claim that I see myself in all of them, but I don't, because frankly, I can only remember flashes of what I was, did, and felt at the time. Instead, I just habitually recall the stories I tell them to make them think I was once cool. Being a philosophy student doesn't last very long. After a while, you either become a philosopher or something else entirely. How lucky I am that I get to have so many of them come through my classroom. How grateful I am that I can share these four with all of you who are listening. With this in mind, I'd love to introduce my guests, all from the University of North Dakota. Madeline Lee is a freshman from East Grand Forks, Minnesota. She is one of the few students who declared a philosophy major from day one. Hi, Maddie. Hi. Sarah Rash is a senior who will be graduating in the fall. She's a philosophy major and my current Y Radio Institute for Philosophy and Public Life intern. Poor thing. She's from Hibbing, uh, Minnesota, but claims she doesn't know Bob Dylan personally. Sarah? Hi, Jack. Are you tired of Bob Dylan jokes already? A little bit. Yeah, I suspect. Um, Therese Azar is a senior graduating in about six weeks. She's an English major and is planning on going to law school. She's from the Turtle Mountain Reservation located in Belcourt, North Dakota. How are you doing, Therese? Good. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, thank you for asking. That was very sweet. All right. And finally... Samuel Mendelar, who graduated with a philosophy degree in 2016 and survived being my intern after that, albeit barely. He's back at UND getting a master's degree in English and is currently waiting to hear about acceptance to that same department's PhD program. He's from Red Wing, Minnesota. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Jack. So I'm actually going to start with Maddie. Uh, I want to start with you because you're in your first year. And for you in particular, high school must have been really hard because you were there during the pandemic years. What was it like being a high school student during COVID? So I guess I'll start by saying I have two high-risk family members. My mom has an autoimmune disorder and my dad has asthma. Um, so it was just a really scary time to be trying to get an education and also caring for my family. Um, because the thing about COVID was that it didn't matter 
um, how little information we knew, we knew that people were dying. And that's a really um, like strict fact to know about something. And it's really scary um, and upsetting. So I actually went home um, in, I believe, May of 2020 or March, whichever month it was. Um, and I didn't go back to school until September. I tried to return for my junior year and I went to classes for about two weeks. Um, and then we had one of the first outbreaks of COVID in the school and I immediately went home. And I did not return to school for the rest of the year. I did most of my junior year at home um, online. And then I had a couple classes that I had to go into the school for and be asynchronous. Um, and that was really hard because I didn't have the motivation. I didn't have ac extracurricular activities. I didn't get to play sports. Um, I didn't really get to see my friends. I spent a lot of time with my family. And that wasn't a bad thing. It was just knowing that if I brought something home to them, that it would be it felt like it would be my fault. I want to put aside the question of motivation for just a second because I think that that is going to be a theme that we recount over and over again. Did your community of students feel the same way? Was there a general sense of individual responsibility or was it more like as often described in the media that there was tremendous differences of opinion and lots of people thought it was – not serious or they didn't care or what have you. How how unified was the student body in terms of dealing with the pandemic? It was very obvious who had people in their family who were high risk and who weren't. Um, and it was just a really polarized subject, which made everything really difficult because nobody wanted to be the person to make the decision. Um, nobody wanted to be the person to say we're going to do this um, over this because it made people upset um, on both sides. And for me, it was I think it made me realize that empathy is so important um, and not sympathy, empathy, like being able to understand how other people are experiencing their life instead of just feeling bad for them. Um, because I personally was in a really hard spot throughout most of COVID um, where I just kind of lived in fear because even when more information came out, it was still that background of this could hurt my family. And I never wanted that to be the case. So it was a lot of back and forth of, oh, we should be wearing masks, but there were always the people who didn't want to. And I think it really came down to just you have empathy for other people. And that was really frustrating because I had some of my closest friends who just didn't understand how big of a deal it was for me personally um, because it didn't affect them in the same way. Did the school teach empathy? And what I mean by that is not did they put posters up and say, you know, care about your coughing or some sort of World War II-esque, you know, <laughs> propaganda – was there any attempt in high school to learn and cultivate what often gets called the moral imagination, the process of entering into the perspective of other people other than the sort of race and gender thing that, that's automatically part of the curriculum? How much is there in your experience – the cultivation of empathy of real people to the real people who are standing next to them? I would say it's pretty low, unfortunately. I think that definitely it's a class-to-class -class basis because you're not going to go to, like, history and learn about having empathy for other people. Um, I do think that my school did do a good job of having really good counseling services available, which kind of provided people a space to learn how to be empathetic. Um, but I think in general, especially during COVID, it was one of those things where – they wanted to make the most amount of people happy, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not inherently like the worst decision to make. Um, I think it was just people needed to understand that your decision wasn't inherently right over someone else's opinion just because you have a different experience than them. Um, I think it was really important to look at how other people were living their lives, not because they'd wanted to, but because that was the way they had to. 
And I think that there were, I think it really depended on what faculty members you talked to as well, um, because there were some faculty members who cared enough to wear a mask, but they didn't care enough to ask you how your family was doing or ask how it was emotionally affecting you. Um, And there were some faculty members who would reach out to me and ask me about it. um, And they would send me emails or have a Zoom link and ask me how I was doing emotionally and mentally. Um, And I think that that was what was really important. I would say mostly, though, it was a lot of uh, everybody just needs to do their own research in the news and you can have your own opinion. And it wasn't a lot of it wasn't a lot about um, reach out to your classmates or make sure that everybody's like feeling OK. It was a lot of that. Uh, we just have to get through it. You know, I, I found that to be the case as well uh, on the several times when during my Zoom classes, uh, I would talk about how hard it was for me. And, and you know, being with students is is uh, energetic and, and, and it gives you something in return. Being on Zoom is you're just giving all this energy and you get nothing back, especially in the bigger classes where there are you know, 40 squares and people aren't paying attention. Yeah. And so when I would talk about what a hard time I was having, the next day I would get emails from students who were incredibly grateful and saying, we didn't know faculty were having the same time. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being so vulnerable. And, and that makes me think, um, Sarah and Therese, um, you both experienced the pandemic at UND on the college level. Is the way that Maddie describes her high school similar to the university experience or was it different? Let's start with you, Sarah. What do you think? Definitely. Um, I remember my freshman year, I was lucky enough to have the regular freshman experience, you know. And then my sophomore year, COVID hit. And it was weird because we're so far apart from each other when we're allowed to go to class and Half of our faces are covered, and it's difficult to speak to people because my freshman year, you could just turn to the person next to you and be like, hey, you understand what's going on right now? And you can exchange notes and chat, and it's really easy to make friends. But um, it was really difficult to speak to people and make friends and make connections during COVID just because you you really couldn't. (laughs) Interaction was limited, and I feel like college is the place to really – meet new people and make new friends. And I'm a social person. I really enjoy talking to people and meeting new people. So it was especially difficult for me in that aspect. And that that brings up that empathy theme again, right? Because if you can't see the smile, if you can't see the way that your face crinkles, you become much less accessible and it's much harder to read people's expressions and and internal life and eyes can tell you some things, but it can tell you only so much. It must have been really hard, though, to to have the college life um, taken out from under you, right? You were there as a first-year student. You're doing all first-year student things. And then, oops, no, you don't get that anymore. Did that make it – I mean, I I guess you can't say if it made it worse because you've only been to college once, right? But, But how hard was that? It was difficult to be in class and have relationships with professors when I don't even know what half of their face looks like, you know. And, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but it was really impersonal. Therese, is this your experience as well? Um, yeah, it's a very similar experience. I was actually um, doing my first half of my undergrad, my associate's agree- degree at Turtle Mountain Community College. So I went to the first fall semester there like several years back, and then I came back in the spring semester when COVID hit right in the middle of the spring semester before spring break. Um, and that was a very traumatic time because everyone – that's when you know the whole toilet paper craze was happening and everyone was panicking like, oh, my gosh, it's the literal apocalypse because it was so new and everything was so unknown. 
Um, so I think fear of the unknown definitely messed with people a lot. Turtle Mountain's a tribal college. Correct. The community, therefore, has something in common pre-college, right? I mean, there, there, there may be some non-enrolled um, uh, members of tribes, but, but in, in general, it's, it's, thought of, is, uh, it's thought of as that. Do you think that being part of that community changed the experience? Do you think that the disconnect of UND being you know, an aggregate of students who come together uh, and learn eventually to be a community – would have been a different experience than people who already identify as part of the same group with a shared history and I would assume shared responsibilities. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I think it's a, just a very different mindset when you're all connected through um, quite literally DNA <laughs> uh, in most cases. And, you know, we're from the same area. Uh, we share the same cultural heritage and background. Um, so from a very young age, we're just really um, kind of trained almost to be caring for one another and be very empathetic, like um, take care of each other's needs, especially physical needs. Like, oh, do you have enough food for the weekend? Do you have enough money, you know, to last you the week for all the groceries and to take care of your children? So I think that aspect played into it a lot. How hard was it to go from a smaller tribal school to a large comprehensive university like UND? Now, for our listeners, compared to Michigan State or Ohio State or Arizona State, UND might not be particularly large. The, the, depending on how you count it, they're between eleven and 14,000 students um, at, at the school. But for the majority of my students, these are – this is the biggest place they've ever been. And Grand Forks, a, a, a city of 65,000 that my mother still calls a town, um, is – Overwhelmingly large, including a lot of students will come their first year, hate it, and go to the, back to the smaller schools. So going from Turtle Mountain to Grand Forks and going from the community college to UND, was it harder to be a student in a bigger place? I definitely think it was a lot more challenging. Um, I think the academic level is kind of similar to what I had in high school, but it was definitely uh, pretty much the opposite going from a community to a state college. Um, the size is tremendous. <laughs> it's a big, big change going from a school that only has maybe a couple thousand um, enrolled at a time and only maybe like 10 or 15 people to a room, uh, including the lower levels of education. Um, definitely was a big deal for me. Um, I've gotten used to it now, but <laughs> in the beginning, it was quite shocking. I'm going to go back, Maddie, for a second. And the <laughs> this is going to sound a little accusatory, but not to you. But, but, but I want to follow this thread. Notoriously, in the high schools around here, and, and you're in East Grand Forks, you're across the river, but for all intents and purposes, it's the same city. Though white students um, don't interact at all with the native students. They don't uh, – this is a very big refugee resettlement area. So there's Somalis, there's Bhutanese, there's Iraqi that have been going you know, for as long as – longer than I've been here and, we've, and my family has been here for 22 years. How much interaction did the white students have with the non-white students and – was there pressure to create a kind of diverse community or were the norms and the customs and, and, and the habits really just 
didn't allow for that? I would say that we did actually have a fair amount of mingling, um, if for no other reason than our school is small. Um, I only had 130 people in my graduating class, and we, um, a lot of the um, Somalian students came around middle school, um, and most of them were English-speaking, um, but we did have a good English second language program in our high school, especially for those students. Um, I don't think there was a pressure to, um, like, mingle with each other or, like, get to be friends. I think it was that there was a an expectation that we coexist. Um, and I think that a lot of people really weren't problematic about it. Um, there were a lot of people who... I was friends with a lot of the Somalian girls. They were really kind um, and incredibly intelligent. Um, one of the girls that I knew, she moved away, and she was honestly one of the kindest humans I've ever met. Um, and I will, like, I'll just probably never talk to her again, which is really upsetting. Um, but I think it's people, a lot of people appreciated the different experiences coming in because as much as there is that connotation that a lot of smaller schools would have um, problematic opinions about people of different races coming, which I'm not saying wasn't present. It absolutely was, and there definitely were times that it was very prevalent in my school. But for the most part, the people who had the bigger hearts and who understood that they're just people um, were the overwhelming majority. And I think that it was, especially when we were younger, it was normal. It was very easy to get to know those people and to like sh- understand their experience coming over with immigrant parents and want to learn. Um, and then I think especially from East Grand Forks perspective, because our school is still significantly smaller than Grand Forks. Um, Again, it was just like, we didn't really have a choice, but not in a bad way. I think it did benefit people because I think that a lot of people who did have problematic opinions about um, different races had to learn from that and had to understand that their biases weren't going to be actually um, like facilitated in the normal world and that you were going to have to talk to people of different race, different backgrounds, different religions, especially was a big one. Um, And you were going to have to, you didn't have to accept it. You just had to understand. And I think that my school did a pretty good job. But again, I will not dismiss the fact that there were people with some problematic opinions. (laughs) When we come back, I'm going to start by asking Sam for an external view of that. And what I mean by that is Sam is a grad student now and he now has the role of teaching. And he teaches first-year students because he teaches the uh, Composition 101 class. And so I'll be curious how this kind of transition appears to him. But before that, we're going to take a break. My name is Jack Russell Weinstein. You're listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We're listening to Sarah, Sam, Therese, and Maddie on why. We'll be right back. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower.
You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with four University of North Dakota students about the experience of what it means to be a philosophy student. We haven't quite got to the philosophy yet. Uh, We're still talking about the student experience. And for me, it's hard to distinguish between the two because I was always a philosophy student, right? So I don't know what the difference is between being a student and being a philosophy student other than what I see in the classroom. And in my experience, there really are two kinds of involved students in a philosophy classroom, right? There are the students who aren't involved. There are the students who aren't interested. There are students who are entertained by it and and who want to do well because it's a required course on on the lower level. But the two kinds of involved students are the students who dive in and love it because it's a puzzle that never ends. And there's something liberating about that sense that you can pull any thread and ask any question and undermine any argument. And then there's the student who's panicking. And that student is almost always the nursing student or the hard science student, the people who characterologically need an answer, the student who wants to raise their hand and say, look, you've just said five different philosophers and you've explained why all of them are wrong. Just tell me which one is right and I'll put it on the piece of paper. (laughs) And those people may be able to enjoy themselves eventually, but they never feel quite comfortable. The first time that students encounter that in university is in the writing classes, where the expectation for writing is different, the standard is different, and the way that you are given assignments are different. Sam teaches Comp 101, which in UND has different codes, but but that's not important. He teaches the introductory writing classes. Sam, when you encounter the students, how difficult is it to recognize them as individual people who have their own problems in lives? Or can you only see it as a class? And, and I don't mean this negatively, but, but, but they're all sort of versions of the same person, which is – writing student. Yes, I think certainly for first-year students coming in, there's a bit of learning to walk at the university, right? And so in that way, they could be kind of homogenous and certainly in the first semester where they're really trying to get their legs and kind of navigate the new experience of university life. However, at least for myself, I really try to tend to give attention to what students' particular interests are what's going on in their lives. I think many students are very surprised, especially in the composition courses, with how personal the instructors tend to be. Writing in itself is a very intimate thing. And so we get to experience the students' thoughts and their words and ideas through that. But then also in the classroom where they're consistently engaged and asked to participate rather than kind of being talked at in lectures with other courses, I think it creates a really different environment. That, that intimacy is tremendously important. Some professors do it better than others and some students are more open to it than others. But you also have the experience of having gone through undergraduate as a philosophy major and in those classes and now you're in an English program. What's the difference between a philosophy student and an English student? Not you know what's the difference between an undergraduate and a graduate but is there a way to summarize or articulate – a core essential difference between 
doing philosophy and doing English? Yes. In many ways, I think they're pretty similar. I'll begin with that. Um, I think the overlap between the disciplines is pretty consistent. We're teaching critical thinking. We're teaching communication and all those other skills. And you're focusing on text. Yes. Right? And yes, writing. Yeah. Certainly. Um, where it differs, of course, is that in English, of course, we're emphasizing the literature, which carries the dialogues. Whereas in philosophy, sometimes it can be far more open-ended in terms of what we're looking to explore, what avenues are available to us in that way. Kim and I, my wife Kim, uh, as an English professor, as, as all of you know and, and, and as many long-term listeners know, we always talk about the fundamental difference between our disciplines. You can see it at conferences and papers when guests come to deliver because the English visitors, all the English department faculty will raise their hand and say, this is interesting. Tell me more about that. Or you said this in your paper. Tell me more about that. But the philosophers will raise their hand and say, you're wrong. Here's why. <laughs> and the experience <laughs> of being – giving a paper as a philosopher is, is encountering someone who has never thought about this before in their life. This is the first time this idea has – been presented to them by someone else and yet they have a definitive position and you're wrong and they're right and they're going to tell you why. The undergraduates, I'll, I'll start with the undergraduates. I'll, I'll start again with you, Sarah. Is that what it's like to be in a philosophy class? Is there a lot of you're wrong, I'm right, here's why? Um, definitely. There are some people that can be very confrontational. I remember one of the first philosophy classes I took, there's this one guy where my professor could say anything and he'd, he'd always be raising his hand and he'd say something against like whatever we're talking about and it's just kind of like, okay, I, like, you know, let's just move on with the lecture and a lot of the times people do that, I think, because they misunderstood initially what we're talking about and then that's kind of awkward for everybody and we're like, okay, let's just move on but there's definitely that aspect, but um, I think that most of us are just here to learn. Is how much do, do the students feel the responsibility to understand before they criticize, right? There is this knee-jerk reaction. We're all taught to read, especially philosophy texts or political texts, that we're reading it to disagree. We're reading to find the things that we, that, that, that we don't like so we can right. undermine the reading. But – Many professors, certainly I, try to get people to understand first and criticize second. How hard is it to do that? It's very hard. Why? I think. I remember when I first started out, I didn't exactly understand that quite yet. I'm just kind of reading things and taking it in. And I have ideas in my head already. And this text might be challenging that. And that's difficult to even understand for yourself or notice for yourself when you're doing that. But once you can notice that, why am I feeling like a little bit triggered right now? <laughs> um, you can stop and think, okay, I'm going to sit here and understand this first. And then later on, I may or may not even be able to criticize. Speaking of triggered, <laughs> I'm going to ask Therese to follow that up because there is no one in this room and possibly no one in my life except my wife and daughter who thinks of me as more of a pain in the ass than <laughs> Therese does. Uh, we have had many, many, many conversations in which we have talked about her religious beliefs, her political beliefs, and 
That has been a hard experience, Therese, hasn't it? Oh, yes. It's been really difficult, um, mostly because I felt threatened. Um, it's actually kind of funny. Like in the beginning when I first met you, we're so opposite, I think, politically and religiously. You can't get more opposite than that. <laughs> but um, I think it was just more of a shock to my system because my whole life in this small little circle of only one faith and only one cultural background. It's not like I've never been exposed to a more cosmopolitan um, view, but none as like uh, triggering, I suppose, as yours, because you're so blunt. And, I'm, uh, you know, in the Midwest, we're so used to being passive aggressive when we go about dealing with people. So the fact that you were so direct with me was very jarring to my system at first. What made you decide that you knew my religious and political point of view. Now, I'm very open about being Jewish and you're not Jewish, so that's an obvious difference. But you described our initial interaction as us being politically and opposition. What made you decide that you were able to discern what my politics was? I don't know. I guess um, growing up, I came from a more conservative background. So in grade school and high school, that was the experience. That was the overarching political viewpoint. As I got into high school and college, it was much more uh, liberal, which is fine. It's just not something I'm used to. But I feel like just because you're so blunt, and maybe that's what um, triggered it for me. Um, I know you made the difference, like there's Jack the teacher, Jack the person, and but it's very hard for me to separate those two. So, You often had the sense, and, and you've talked to me several times, and I don't want to violate any, you know, privacy or this isn't a therapy session or anything. But, <laughs> not but, today. Not today. But, <laughs> but you have often described the sense of feeling uncomfortable because you felt that everyone around you was liberal and everyone around you was was looking at you. And, and I would often point out that UND is an unbelievably conservative student body. Is it possible for you to distinguish between the anxiety of being looked at because you are politically and religiously conservative and the anxiety of being looked at because you have an indigenous background in a university that is notoriously hostile to indigenous imagery and indigenous traditions. Are those two things the same thing for you or are you able to parse them and and have different reactions to those different contexts? I feel like I'm constantly having one foot in two different worlds. Um, it's really hard for me to um, kind of separate the two, but I almost have to because, I mean, while they work well together, it's uh, a lot of times they don't. There's a lot of conflict. Uh, definitely with the religious side of things and the political side of things, I don't feel um, as threatened given the area. You know, it's and there's nothing wrong with people having opposing viewpoints. I just feel like. I'm constantly being looked at, like you said, like, oh, you know, she, how can she think this way? But then, of course, I catastrophize everything. So that could be mostly me making that th- thing up. But um, I think um, being from an indigenous background, I feel a little more threatened since I'm a minority of a minority of a minority right. <laughs> in the location. Do you feel <laughs> – I, I don't know what to call it. I'll, I'll call it, uh, instead of radar and gator, I'll call it hate dar. <laughs> Do you feel that you can accurately assess when someone is suspicious of you or is regarding you as different or is bigoted? How 
on the surface is that and how much of that do you think is not accurate reporting but preconceived notions? Is there any way for you to know? I mean this is an epistemological problem, right? This is what can we know and what can't we know and so philosophy is, is really about the nature and the limits of knowledge. So as an epistemological philo philosophical problem, can you determine when you are accurate or inaccurate in your assessment of people's attitudes about you? I definitely think that's a really hard thing to figure out because you can never really get into someone's mind truly so you don't know what their real opinion is about something. I think it's harder to tell if somebody's a threat in the professional sense. So on campus, everyone's generally friendly. And I really do try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think most people on campus and the surrounding area are pretty friendly. Um, but I think it's more to do with the environment than anything else. Because if I'm somewhere else in a different environment where it's more relaxed, it's not professional, maybe it's somewhere where there's not a lot of minorities there. If I dress a certain way, if I dress more culturally how I would dress like on the reservation, I think I would feel a lot more unsafe <laughs> in that situation. Was it, was it my bluntness that was the most triggering or was there content and ideas that you found to be the most difficult for you to, I don't want to say engage with because you've always been an incredibly engaged and thoughtful student, but that, that, that you butted heads with? What, what was, it, was, was it my personality <laughs> and teaching style or was it the content of the classes and the content of our conversation that you found the most difficult to deal with? Honestly, I really do enjoy your teaching style. I feel like um, out of all my professors, and I'm not just doing this to stroke your <laughs> ego, I have learned you are on my you. show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I think it definitely was a content that swayed me because it's just not something either A, I've thought about in that way before or something that was so contrary to how I saw the world that I couldn't believe that something so different could, you know, be discussed like that in that way. Can you give an example of a topic that stayed with you that, that you found – as an exemplar of that? Um, I think there are a lot of topics that we went into that were really difficult to discuss. I think the one, one of the bigger ones was the whole race uh, topic. Um, and since, you know, there's mostly white students in the classes and everything, that was very, um, it wasn't a new topic to me, but I feel like it was a new topic of discussion for everyone else. And since I'm white passing, you know, it's, um, I feel like I can almost blend in and see what people really think, whereas if people knew, then I would probably not hear as much. And this is one of the, this is one of the challenges as a teacher um, at UND as well, where the white students have so little – I should say the regional white students have so little um, consciousness of the differences around them that they will say things in class or next to each other that in other universities, those same students would have been trained not to say in public. And it doesn't mean that they wouldn't think them. It was just they would know that, that these are the kinds of things. Maddie, I want to ask you, especially since you're, you, you were in your first um, intro class with me last semester and that was your first semester. Now you're in uh, 300 level, very difficult and sophisticated philosophy of law class. What's been the most surprising and shocking and difficult topic for you? And it doesn't have to have been in my class. I mean, it could be anywhere. I would have to say the hardest topic that has come up was honestly 
probably critical race theory so far. Um, and if not critical race theory, feminism. <laughs> I'm in a feminist philosophy class right now, and I think it's a really interesting class. I don't necessarily agree with everything. And I, I'm a woman, so like it's kind of a weird thing to say. But some of the stuff that you read where it's just um, – it's been really hard because sometimes it's – I feel like people are reading too deep into stuff. Like it'll be I, – I made an argument once in my class this semester where we were talking about um, different like gender roles and how those have led people to conformity. And I made the point to say that I enjoy baking and I enjoy cooking, but not because I <laughs> – I don't do it very often. But when I do do it, I try to make it fun. And that's not because I feel like a societal pressure to do so. It's because my dad and my mom like cultivate that experience as a special one for me. Like just this morning when I was trying to leave to come here, my parents were having a who can make the best flatbread pizza competition <laughs> um, just like on a Saturday morning. And we do stuff like that all the time. So it's those little things where it's really hard because there's a part of me that understands. And obviously I understand that it hasn't always been that way and that we're living in a society where it's um, a little less prevalent but it's still really hard to hear sometimes people really dig into a topic and I'll go, but maybe it's not that way. Maybe it's just that person. I think that sometimes it's really hard with philosophy when you're talking about those like critical race theory or feminism or different stuff about religion. It's I think some people sometimes forget that we are just people and that, yeah, there are stereotypes and there are connotations and there are different things that we have seen throughout history where it is a repeating occurrence or it is a repeating trait, but that every individual human being is a person with their own mind. And I think sometimes, especially in that, that feminist philosophy class and our ethics class from last semester, I remember on like the second day of class, you asked someone in the class if they think that genocide is morally wrong and they like struggled to answer that question. <laughs> and that was really a really weird experience <laughs> um, because I would have immediately said, well, yeah, it's that's probably not a good thing to do. But the way that he explained it, it was like, okay, I could understand how you think that way. Um, and he didn't he didn't say that he doesn't think it's wrong. He just had a reason for the way he answered the question, which I think is a good thing. I think that's the point of philosophy. But yeah, I would say feminism, critical race. It's just those hard things where people kind of forget. They get wrapped up in the, oh, these dots are connecting and we're connecting all these red lines. And it's like, okay, you are. But also take a step back. We're all humans. So, so, so you're articulating at least three distinct problems. The first, which is a problem that actually I don't think gets enough attention, which is the becoming racist by fearing that you're doing something racist so you treat someone as if they're different when they're not. And so the example I would give is you're serving watermelon and um, fried chicken at a picnic um, and then you're going to ask your black colleague if they want to come over and – all of a sudden, you're worried that you're going to look like a, a racist because you're serving a stereotypical food, but you like that food and you know that you know this person and you assume they like this food. And how do you deal with those sorts of crazy pressures, absurd realities when we live in, in, in a racist society? So that's the first thing. The second thing is the problem that is the classic problem in philosophy, which is having an intuition and, and, and finding it really hard to justify it, right? Even if Everyone in that room agreed that genocide was wrong or we shall say immoral. Mm -hmm. Having to explain why something is moral and having to find an explanation that is persuasive for lots of different people, that's a whole different project as well. But then there's this other project that I think is really important that 
I would be interested in, in, in all of your thoughts on this, which is this idea of balancing the, the theoretical generalizations versus the individual people, right? We are making institutional uh, observations. We're, we're, we're talking about structures, so critical race theory or feminism or, or other sorts of things are about the institutions in our society and the, 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 the waves of history and individual experiences may vary, right? And the person who you sit next to is their own person with their own lives. And of course, it, it is always, I mean, it's not astonishing anymore uh, to me because I've been doing this so long, but it is always a uh, very visceral reminder when I have a student who isn't very participatory or, or, or seems fine in class and then comes up, to, comes up to me and tells me about some problem in their life and it's this horrendous experience that you could never see from their faces. So I guess the question I have for all of you and I'll start with Sarah and then I want to ask Sam a variation of this is how much of the philosophy that you learn in class can you apply to individual people and the day-to-day -day knowledge of life and how much of it is abstract and theoretical and and – I don't like to say ivory tower because, of course, the motto of the Institute for Philosophy of Public Life is there is no ivory tower, right? <laughs> but, but, um, but, but that somehow when it's academic, it's impersonal. How do you balance those and is it possible to apply the philosophy to your day-to-day -day life? Well, one major takeaway from philosophy for me is um, creating definitions for yourself, I suppose, and um, being more – empathetic towards other people. When I'm I'm going to try for a second. What do those two things have to do with each other? Those are, that's a really interesting juxtaposition. What is definitions for yourself and empathy? How do they, what do they have to do with each other? How do they relate? Why did why in your brain did one follow from the other? Well, you never know what's going on in another person's life, right? Like you can never truly know. So, I try and treat everybody respectfully. Well, when I'm dealing with different people, you know, what does respect mean to me? And then I think, oh, well, I know what respect means to me or being kind or being nice. So I just try and treat everybody no matter what with that same definition. And I'm, I'm still being me. I'm still treating everybody equally, respectfully. And um, I think that's a big deal. How often is your definition challenged, right? You present a certain notion of respect to another person. How much does it come back at you where the person either says or signifies or reacts as if your definition of respect is inadequate for their needs or their definition of respect is profoundly different than yours? It's definitely difficult because I think of respect in one way and then another person might think of it differently, of course. And I've never really had the experience. I've never had, like, too negative of an experience before. But um, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. And that's, and that's okay. So so, yeah. so, so let me ask it in a, in a slightly different way that will, that will be more in tune with your experience. How often, let's say the notion of respect, how often does the material in class undermine your presumptions 
of what those terms mean, right? You you were in my philosophy of education class. Uh, you're in my public philosophy class. Uh, you were in 355 last semester, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the social and political philosophy class, yep. which was uh, about liberalism and diversity. Um, how often did that material confirm your philosophical intuitions about things like respect and dignity and these related concepts? And how often did they force you to really push your definition aside and have a different notion of what they meant? Well, I remember in the very beginning of the semester for our social and political class, 355, um, we had a discussion about freedom. We talked about Isaiah Berlin and Charles Taylor and all these people. And I thought it was crazy. I'm like, wow, I'd never thought of these kinds of definitions for these things before. And then we got to Rawls, the big one. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm Fine. talking about, Therese. <laughs> yeah. Maddie hasn't suffered through that yet. She yeah, will, though. I'm extremely excited. <laughs> it's a really good class. It's tough, but it's really good. Yeah. And um, think John Rawls's definition of freedom completely blew my mind. I thought, wow, I had never thought of freedom and justice in this way at all before. And then I remember... Like, I thought that was really good, but I always had this feeling on the inside, like, something's missing. This is so structured, you know. But um, then we read Martha Nussbaum, and I was also in an ethics class, and we were talking about feminist ethics. And I thought, oh, my gosh, these two books, his Theory of Justice, Political Liberalism, and Martha's um, Women and Human Development, these are just, like, made for each other because he has the structure and she has – the practice and how can we make this better for everybody, you know? And that class, like, it really blew my mind, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. So, so you know, there's no time for me to <laughs> uh, articulate the different theories right. of all of the people you mentioned. But what I think a lot of people will find both intriguing and unfamiliar about the examples that you offered is that not only does freedom have a definition, I mean, I guess that's not that surprising, but that people don't agree on what that definition is. Right. And that there's not just one or two or three or four definitions, but that freedom, you know, if we take it seriously, is itself an incredibly difficult concept to articulate, right? You ask, if you ask George W. Bush, for example, what's the purpose of the American government? His answer would be to keep people free. Right? He has said that explicitly. So then the question is, what does it mean to be free? How are you keeping people free? In the United States, and some of you have heard me talk about this already, in the United States, our conception of freedom is do whatever you want without any consequences. That's the, that's the ideal freedom, that you can do whatever you want, whatever your heart desires, and nothing negative or bad will happen because of it. Whereas in many other cultures, freedom is being able to walk the street unmolested or, or, or not being afraid of other people, right? In, in New York, where most people don't care what anyone else is doing, you're also looking over your shoulder to see if someone dangerous is coming along, whereas there are many cultures in which people do very much care about what you're doing, but you're perfectly safe, right? And those aren't the only two options, <laughs> and there are lots of other ways to think about it, but that, that I would imagine, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that perhaps the hardest thing about entering into the role of a philosophy student is accepting the fact that every single term we take for granted is itself controversial and that we 
will not and possibly cannot come to a consensus of these core ideas of respect, empathy, dignity, freedom. Am I misrepresenting your experiences here? I think that is pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah I agree. I would say that's consistent. I'll give you an example from my own teaching. We're working right now, say, in the composition course with public space. And then we move into asking the students, okay, well, you're going to write on this subject. What does public mean to you? Is it including everyone? Is it including only citizens? Who has access? Is it public? Is it private? What do these distinctions mean? What are the implications of these things? And they're kind of shocked when they start kind of getting into the minute details of these things like, well, how far can we take this dialogue? And I think that's really interesting to them. About uh, maybe 15 years ago, you know, it's hard when you get to be my age, it all blurs, right? But about 15 years ago, when Starbucks was becoming incredibly popular, there was this whole discussion. Starbucks wanted to be what they called the third space. Right? The home was the first space where you can be and work is the second space you can be. And the third space was supposed to be a place where you can relax, where you can talk to other people, where you can be social in your own terms. But by definition, Starbucks isn't public, right? Starbucks is private. Starbucks is corporate. So if they are going to define the third space, they're going to have – the innocuous decisions such as how big are the tables and whether or not strangers sit together or whether the chair is comfortable for long periods of time and what music is in the background. But also the more profound and complex political questions like is it going to be an LGBTQ-friendly space? Are you going to let not just service dogs in but but dogs that, that are uh, just comfort or, or, or friends or pets and, and – how much are you going to charge people so that both the upper classes and the lower classes, to use old-fashioned terminology, uh, interact with one another, right? And so this idea of public is so filled with baggage. We were talking, Sam, about this notion of diversity. How does the exploration of diversity change – when you were a student and you learned about diversity in the philosophy classes, how did they – does that differ from your experience of, of teaching and exploring diversity with your students in the English classes? Oh, um, certainly in recent years, there's been much more emphasis on the subject, which is great to see. Um, but it's interesting as a student because, for instance, amongst the peers and amongst the student body that we've described, say, at UND, it's fairly homogenized. So students' experience of a diversity and then their interactions with the subject, in many ways, that's kind of their first introduction to it. So they aren't entirely sure how to kind of navigate these positions or navigate the scholarship on these topics. As an instructor now, kind of facilitating those dialogues and teaching them how to navigate it, it's very different. Um, I'll want another example, for instance. Um, we were teaching Jennifer Eberhardt as part of our composition curriculum, and she has this book titled Biased, where she's talking about the differences between implicit bias and racism and how one is conscious and the other is subconscious. And for many of the white students in the class, they were very uncomfortable having that discussion with black students in the course when it was 
in my other section, just a white student body, they were much more talkative about the subject. So it's something that they're consciously aware of. They know enough to try to tread lightly around the subject, but their engagement with it varies. Was that similar in your experience? I I think about a couple of the classes that you took and students that, you know, you will remember. No one else will know what I'm talking about. But Luan, who's African-American, yes. and, and Eric, who is um, Hmong. Eric was Hmong? Not Hmong. Um, Laotian. Laotian. He was Laotian. Yes. Um, uh, did you feel that kind of tension with them once the three of you became good friends? Absolutely not. I mean, we – Eric and I still communicate regularly. You know, we're good friends, of course. We've yeah. been at your – residents before, uh, for different occasions. Um, no, we, you know, we have those interactions with people and you learn and you come to find that perhaps the difference isn't quite as big as you'd imagined or that there's a lot more intersection between individuals. Is, do you think that philosophy and maybe that abstract way that philosophy talks about things allowed for easier conversations and the more sort of particularist English, which talks, you know, literature, their narratives, their stories, their personal experiences, and Eberhardt's book, who, by the way, I have an invitation out to her for the be on the show. We'll see if she, we'll see yeah. if she bites. Um, <laughs> uh, um, she has very clear real world examples that are that are often, you know, heartbreaking and, and brutal. Um, yeah, philosophy will use the word genocide to, 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 to recall Maddie's conversation, but it isn't very often going to give detailed graphic accounts of genocide, right? It'll talk about war, but in English, you're going to read the things they carried, right? You're going to read uh, Mouse or, or um, another or, – or Night or some other Holocaust literature. In your experience, how – is that – is the abstract approach an easier way of talking about diversity or is it a harder way? I think it's easier in that it lets us kind of explore how the things are constructed. If we're thinking of race, ethnicities, these types of things, of course, are – you know have some historical grounding and are constructed categories. And so if we're thinking of them through a philosophic lens rather than just taking the stereotype at face value and running with that, if we're looking at them critically and philosophically, we can explore those kinds of subjects like what created these categories? How do these categories come then to define individuals? Once you can break down those discussions and break down the nuances of them rather than say here's this generalized approach – Moving into the abstraction, I think, permits a lot more space to explore, gather the nuances, and be empathetic to individuals. To, to, to have this sort of philosophical and conceptual commitment gives you permission to apply it in a way maybe that, that, yes. that the literature yes, doesn't. Yes, absolutely. So I, I want to ask a, a different question. In part, we've, we've been talking about ideas and the, the concepts and, and the experiences that have stayed with you. This is an ambiguous question and, and uh, you can answer it any way you want. Uh, I'll start with Maddie. How hard is it to be a philosophy student? Right? You're, in, you're still in your first year and you've made the jump from intro level to, to upper level classes, which is a rough jump to make. How hard is it to be a philosophy student? 
Um, so we were actually talking about this before you'd come in. Um, I experienced a lot of pressure in high school to not just go into like a STEM major, but to go into a major that people acknowledged as meaning something. And I say that in air quotes is what I got such weird looks when I started telling people at my grad party um, that I was going into pre-law philosophy. And if I, I would never say the pre-law, I would say philosophy and they would kind of give me like a little stink eye of why are you doing that? Um, and then when I'd add the pre-law in front of it, their expression changed. Um, and I also have two minors, and they're both in sustainability studies, something around those realms. Um, so it's just kind of a lot of, I get a lot of looks of why are you majoring and minoring in things that are so, you're not going to be ready to have a real job, I think is the way that people view them. And that's really hard for me because it's things that I'm passionate about. Um, I definitely, I took a lot of college classes in high school, so I came in not needing any of my essential studies. I have to take two or three of them. So I did jump really quickly from those intro level courses up to higher 300 level courses, um, which from the older students I've talked to was not necessarily the experience they had. And I think it's been really eye-opening for me to, in high school, I spent a lot of time taking those science classes and thinking of, okay, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to keep it in my brain. I'm going to take a test. And it might stay, it might not. Um, Where philosophy is a constant build. It's a constant, I'm going to take this first class and I'm going to learn these basic ideas and then I'm going to take another class that is just that idea. Like I went from ethics where we mentioned feminist philosophy and now I'm taking a feminist philosophy course and it really allows me to feel like I'm actually being productive because I'm not so, I, I'm so bad at math. I'm just terrible at it. Science, not so much, but math is the worst for me. Um, and I don't, I don't like thinking like that. I like to be able to think critically. I like to be able to think freely. And I think that philosophy offers that for me. But that doesn't mean it's easy. I took intro to logic last semester, as you know. I've complained about the class before. <laughs> um, I loved the professor. And the class was really hard for me because it was math but words, essentially, at some points. And it was really frustrating. And my friends would look at my homework and they'd be like, "This, that is not philosophy. What are you doing? Um, so that it's kind of a weird experience of going back and forth between the critical and the free thinking, but it's a good mix. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I taught both intro to philosophy and symbolic logic off and on for 15 years, and it was by far the worst class in terms of my <laughs> teaching. I teach logic. I teach symbolic logic worse than any other <laughs> symbolic logician on the planet. Uh, but I, I, I really I, – I'm really interested in this thing you said about about – Taking the science test and then you're going to wonder whether or not uh, it stays in your, in, your, in your brain. Do you think that the philosophical ideas have more staying power with you, that there's something that they that, – that your memory works differently, that the facts are more ephemeral but the concepts, for lack of a better word, are sticky? And is that just – Characterological? Is that just your personality, how, how your mind works? Or do you think that there's just something different about how we remember um, facts versus concepts? I think it could definitely be talked down to both. I do know when I start talking about philosophy in front of some of my friends, I get really different responses. Um, a lot of my friends are either majoring in education or a STEM major. Um, and then my best friend is majoring in psychology at ASU. So when I have conversations with her about it, she's more receptive because she's learning similar concepts. When I talk about philosophy to my friend who's majoring in um, medical lab sciences, <laughs> she listens and I think she understands the concepts if I explain them to her. 
but she isn't as quick to start adding her own opinion or information. I think earlier, something I wrote down when we were talking about when you're reading a paper, the difference between reading it and coming up with, you're constantly trying to decide if you agree or not. I think that something I learned really quickly in philosophy is that you have to read it and you have to develop an argument. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same argument that the author's making. It just has to be an argument. Um, and that's something that I think helps me remember the stuff I'm learning. I think when you're learning about cells and how different animals interact with each other, which I do learn about because of my sustainability studies, those classes are a lot, they're still interesting to me and I'm very passionate about them. I think if I wasn't passionate about the environment, I wouldn't care and those classes would be very hard for me. Um, but there is a philosophy of environmental science. So I look at everything as I'm developing an argument about the thing that I'm learning and that helps me remember it because every time it's brought up again, I draw back to that argument and I either build on it or I completely change my mind. And I don't think that I don't think that that's not present in STEM because you are constantly learning new information. There's constantly new technology. But my, my best friend here at UND, she's in aviation. And she just has to learn the stuff, get her degree so she can start flying. She constantly talks about how it doesn't matter if she learns like leadership skills necessarily because they just care if she can fly a plane. And for me, that sounds horrible. I tell her all the time, like that sounds like a boring life to live, but she's passionate about it. So I think that's also the personal part is you have to care about what you're learning. There's a consistency in STEM classes in particular because the class on the uh, chemistry of metals has to work with the class on uh, how to build a bridge, right? Yeah. Um, but in philosophy, each of the classes is supposed to be intention, not to mention each of the lessons, right? I, I you were, You've all heard me say this in the intro-level classes. I – Teach one philosopher as if that philosopher is right and then the next week – because my intra-level classes are once a week. The, um, the next week, I, I teach someone who explains why the previous person was wrong and then the next week, I teach why the previous person was wrong and then the next week, someone new and I teach – and so all it is is a list of options and the students have to choose for themselves. That's very different. Sarah, how hard is it to be a philosophy student? It is difficult. Um, I want to build off of what Maddie said. Uh, I'm a philosophy student. People ask me what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, I'm philosophy. And I get some weird looks sometimes. And they, uh, they ask me, well, what are you going to do with that? But I don't think that's the greatest question. I mean, I might not have as clear of a career path as, say, a nursing student or an aviation student. But um, a philosophy degree, it gives me the ability to think critically. I can read and analyze text. I can negotiate and I can articulate myself. And those are real-world life skills. And to me, that's invaluable. It is worth <laughs> self-advertising here. Philosophyisagreatmajor.com, which is one of the Institute's projects, which makes these arguments that, that, that Sarah is making very, very well, which is that philosophy is as much about skills as it is about uh, selling the whole. And so if, if it's why one of the statistics we use on, on, on the website, that's philosophyisamajor.com, uh, uh, says that 95 percent of undergraduate philosophy majors are employed within six months. Those are great numbers and that's precisely because you're selling people. Is it, Sarah, is it just the perception and the skepticism from other people that makes it hard to be a philosophy student or is being a philosophy student hard – because studying philosophy is hard. <laughs> well, a little both, I would yeah. say. Studying philosophy is definitely difficult. There's some, there's some seriously hard texts out there <laughs> that are seriously tough to decipher. But 
then once you get through that, it's a really great feeling. When the theory really clicks, it's one of my favorite feelings. <laughs> talk, talk, about, talk about that a little bit. That's, that's really interesting. Well, when you're reading something difficult, um, like I remember when we were reading John Rawls, I have to read this sentence three, four, five times, and then I think, oh, my goodness, I get it now. And it's just – it's kind of a relief, honestly. There's there's a, a self-awareness of your own growth that's that's nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Therese, is being a philosophy student hard? I would say it's really um, – it, it can be difficult. Uh, I think I struggle more with learning the actual philosophy and how to practice different kinds of philosophy. Um, what do you mean by that? Just like learning from different philosophers and different theories that I've never heard of before and if the – like Sarah was saying, Rawls is very difficult because he's very dense. Um, that was difficult. Um, I tend to not care too much about people's perceptions about what I choose to do with my life <laughs> personally because um, I'm just the type of person that's really stubborn and, you know, wants to get things done, you know, a certain way. Um, so while I'm not a philosophy major, I enjoy uh, being a philosophy student. So, Is your stubbornness compatible with philosophy or does it make learning these different philosophers more difficult? I think it definitely makes it more difficult for Why? me. I feel like I get in my own way most of the time. Um, I try to be more open-minded nowadays. Um, I'm definitely a lot further than I was several years ago, um, but I still feel like I could open up a little bit more because, I don't know, it's just very difficult to be told you're wrong <laughs> when you think you're right your whole life. <laughs> so, Philosophers have always tried to claim that being told you're wrong is a virtue, right? You know, I know that I know nothing. In a, in a, in a very early piece that I wrote, I, I called that Socratesing, right? This idea that, that, you know, the philosopher is so romantic and all we want to know is that we know nothing and, and, and we're better people because we're told that we're wrong. And that's just not true. Every philosopher I've met has thought that they were right. And every philosopher that I've met has argued for their own position until the end and, and again, as my wife often will describe, the argumentation style is just simply to argue, argue your point until the other person just gets too exhausted to fight back, <laughs> which is, I think, a, a description. Sam, in retrospect, having been through your entire undergraduate experience already, was being a philosophy student hard? It can be, certainly. You have to be consistently informed. That's going to be something that's prerequisite in many ways. And informed about what? Well, that depends. It could be a variety of things. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, it might be, say, your specialization, but it also could just be seeing how that translates into the world. Right. I mean, and we've talked, for instance, a little bit about how philosophy t uh, tends to develop these what we call soft skills, right, communication, teamwork, critical thinking and those kinds of things. But we call them soft skills, yet it's something every discipline values, whether that be STEM or humanities. I think one of the beauties of philosophy is that it doesn't – you're not sitting in class being told you need to remember this for the test, right? Retention isn't, say, like the prerequisite for the exam. We're not, for instance, emphasizing, you know, how to think about this, but, you know, how to think about our thinking in many ways, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn about this show early on, and there's a reason why I'm telling the story, is that the listeners have a relationship with me as the host, that I envisioned this show 
initially as people who, you know, here's a topic people were interested in. The goal was to sell the topic on an audience. But it became clear to everyone else. And then early on, we worked with a consultant who um, gave some very good advice uh, that people, most people I know or people in my area don't call why why they call it jack's show <laughs> who's on who's on jack's show this month who's jack's guest and i say that because i'm embarrassed to ask the next question but i think that the long especially the long term listeners will really be interested in the answer so i reluctantly ask and you all the four of you know me well enough to know that you're allowed to be completely honest what's it like being my student as opposed to what's it like to be a philosopher? What's it like being in my class? What's it like having me as a professor? How do you how do you describe that experience to the listeners uh, for whom you know I have been a very long lived disembodied voice? <laughs> they're all terrified, by the way. They're all they're all they're all looking away from me. They're they're everyone's examining the, the cracks on the ceilings. They um. um I'll pick on Sam first because since he's a grad student in English, uh, I have the least power over him. <laughs> um, uh, what was it like being my student, Sam? It was wonderful. Um, you know, obviously we've been able to maintain a relationship since then. But, you know, just to give you an idea of how Jack is in the classroom, he was bringing up why one day in class as part of a lesson, you know, oh, well, we had this talk and I'd kind of prodded him a bit and said, oh, a moment for some shameless self-promotion. And he does as he only can do, kind of shimmies his shoulders and lifts his head. And he goes, and what makes you think I have any shame at all? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's that bit. It's, you know, wonderful being in your courses still. You know, it's, they've been incredibly uh, impactful to me. You're taking now uh, a very small uh, – data science ethics class with me yes. that now has uh, three students in it because I don't know if you know this. One of them just dropped. Uh, <laughs> but because she was busy and taking it as part of a, a, a benefit, she's not an enrolled student. Is, is the, is the three-person experience of the class different than the larger class with me? I would say No. Personally, I think the way you've approached your teaching, it's always very intimate and very personal with the students, whether it be three in the classroom, other seminars I've had with you, about 10 other lectures, you know, sitting in on or attending 60. Hmm. You know, it's always, you know, it's never felt as though it was um, distinct or different or impersonal in any of those settings. Therese, other than blunt. <laughs> uh, how would you describe my classes and being my students to people who are interested? Yeah, I would have to agree with Sam on that one. Well, uh, you do give me grief, but I give it right back. I think I really enjoy your classes. I think you're a great person and I have learned so much from you and I can never thank you enough. And I really do mean that. Well, I appreciate that very much. I, the thing... And this will seem odd to some people, but the thing that I'm the most proud of of what you just said is that you can give me grief back, right? It's <laughs> tremendously important to me that I can take what I give, right? And then, and I've said to all of you on numerous occasions that, that, that what I can promise you is that I will work in hard at, in the class as you do, right? I do, don't expect you all to work very hard and then I, you know, 
drink a tropical drink somewhere. Not that North Dakota is conducive <laughs> to tropical drinks, but um, but uh, but that sense that. Do you think that students in general agree with you, Therese? That that that. I'll, I'll say crap instead of the other word uh, since we're on the radio, that, that students can freely give me crap. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think people are a lot more comfortable around you. Um, I know it's been my personal experience, and I think uh, a lot of people around the Midwest can relate to being raised like, oh, your professor is your professor. You must treat them with the utmost respect, and they're so much above you. Do not ever cross that line. With you, it's much more personable. It feels more like a mentor-mentee relationship. It's much easier to think of me as beneath you. As no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But it feels like, you know, you give uh, humanity to the role of a professor. So well, that, that, That's very generous. I appreciate that. Sarah, what's it like doing assignments for me? Ta- Doing ta- assignments. Ta- talk, a little, talk a little bit about what what my expectations are in terms of the work and and not not necessarily standard, but but aside from my personality, which has its merits and demerits, <laughs> um, the assignments, the, the the mechanics of being a, st- a student in my class, what's that like? Well, the assignments, at first, it might not seem obvious why we're doing something or why we're doing it the way that we are, but the reason eventually reveals itself throughout the class, and then you kind of get used to things, and it's like, oh, I know what he expects now, and the type of work that we hand in and what we do, and it's definitely difficult, but it's not so overly difficult that it's completely unbearable. The papers versus the reading versus the talking to one another and, and, and addressing issues in class, which is the most difficult and which is the most satisfying? For me personally, the most difficult is speaking. <laughs> I, I hate speaking in class. Um, but I don't feel so uncomfortable in your classes. I know that lots of people talk all the time and there is definitely – like what Therese said, an atmosphere of professionalism, but there's also it's also comfortable. Manny, as someone as someone who again is in their first year but has had these significant difference of experiences, taking college classes in high school and then taking hundred level class with me and then jumping into the, the, the three hundred level philosophy of law, which by the way is particularly complicated and difficult because as we saw the other day when a student named Siri asked everyone, there are 25 students in the room and 23 of them are planning on going into law school. Yeah. And so there's a very, very particular thing that they want. And that's a hard, that's a hard audience, right? That's to, to, to cater to that, that desperate need that the type A pre-law students have. <laughs> um, do my classes fit your experience of what you thought or wanted college to be? And if so, why or why not? I think they do. Um, sometimes the 9.30 a.m. class is just like really hard for me to go to. I'm not a morning person. So I show up and then I know I have to talk about these really complex and hard topics. I'm like, wow, this, is, this sucks. <laughs> but I always leave it feeling like I learned something. I think that's the important thing. I feel like some of my classes... Um, not just this semester, but last semester too, I felt like I was going and I would leave and I'd go, wow, why did I even bother driving to school? Because I have commute every day, so I have to convince myself to get out of bed. And if it's cold or raining, I just might not. Um, (laughs) And I think that your classes 
have provided an experience for me. I think one of the most important things for me in learning in any context, um, I'm really involved on campus. And I think one of the things that I hold to be most valuable about college is that you're learning other people's experiences and you're learning that it's okay to be wrong. But when you're wrong, you have to learn from that. And I think that philosophy classes and particularly your classes in general, where you do challenge students, allow people to realize not that they're wrong, but that they may need to rethink what the way that they're thinking about a topic. Um, and I think that that's important because a lot of people, I think, get so rooted in the, their opinions that, again, they forget that they're people and that you're incredibly forgiving and that your classes allow people. You're unapologetically you is what I like to say. <laughs> and I think that that gives people that gives people the the feeling that they can be unapologetically themselves. Where a lot of other classes, I feel like I go and I sit there and I'm like, wow, this teacher has no idea who I am as a person. We have no connection. He barely knows my first name. Um, And I'm learning this content that I could learn on my own. And that's a really hard thing where going to your classes, I feel like I'm learning your perspective on life, not just philosophy on life. Because we, we always have, like, these weird random tangents that you like to go on. <laughs> and sometimes when you do it, I'm like, wow, Jack, no, it's 930. <laughs> stop. And then when you're done with it, I'm like, okay, I understand. I know why you just did that. And I think that that's when Siri asked that question and a lot of people raised their hands and were like, we're going to law school. And Siri had kind of a, a visceral reaction to that of, like, wow, maybe I need to reconsider. Um, is like, that's okay. I think a lot of the people that say that they're going to go to law school might not because, like, you've explained a hundred times in that class – Law school is, it's just a discipline. It's you're going to get your license to start doing something. And that's really horrifying for me as an 18-year-old, knowing that in four years I'm going to have to do this big, scary task of going to law school. And nobody ever talks about law school and says, I'm so happy I did it. And it was so fun and such a rewarding experience. It's just like, I'm happy I'm a lawyer now. And I think that your classes encompass all of the things that I wanted of being able to connect with my peers, being able to connect with my professors, um, not being afraid to say when I've, I'm having a bad week, not being afraid to say when the, co- the coursework doesn't make sense to me. Because in some of the other classes, it's when I say, I don't understand this, I feel dumb. And the professors don't always know the best way to respond to that, to make me understand that I'm not dumb. I just don't know what I'm doing or I don't know what I'm talking about. Where you frame your classes in a way that's you don't need to know anything. I'm going to teach it to you and you're going to make your own opinion. And I think that's important. And that's the the thing that uh, I wouldn't pressure you to all recite it, but you've all heard me say it a thousand times, which is when the students are upset that they don't know anything, I always say the same thing, right? I always mm-hmm. say, if you knew how to do this, you wouldn't take the, you wouldn't have to take the class, yeah. right? And 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 that sense that I think is tremendously important to me, which is you are in the process of learning. So if you don't know more three weeks down the road than you do now, then I'm the one who failed, not you. And so I guess because you talked about those asides, the last question I'll ask, the last specific question I'll ask is, speaking for the other students in the room, when I go on these tangents and I give unsolicited life (laughs) advice, which I think is a fair description of it, am I violating the role of the professor? Do you think that those – for other students, not the four of you, for the other students that you know, do you think that this sense of using philosophy as an excuse to give a perspective that I think is very practically helpful, whether it's on relationships or whether it's on um, uh, you know, 
interacting with your parents or whether it's choosing a hobby. Who knows? I don't even know what I talk to. I never, <laughs> I never listen. Um, is that welcome or do you think that that's overstepping my bounds? I think that it oversteps the bounds in the best possible way that that it can. Yeah, you had me in the first half. I'm <laughs> yeah, <not gonna> <laughs> yeah, but in a great way because you think of like professor whoever or doctor whoever. It's a little bit dehumanizing in a certain way. Like I'm assigning a role to this person, which is important. You know, there is a certain relationship, but at the same time. It brings humanity to the role, I believe. And I also just want to go on record to say that um, my favorite part about your classes, which I think is super, super important, is that I always leave feeling motivated. I always feel better leaving class than I did when I arrived. Well, I appreciate that very much. Other folks, the am I crossing the <laughs> boundaries of, of being a professor? Are these nuggets of <laughs> wisdom, for lack of a better term, are they welcome? I think so, personally. You know, I mean, philosophy is, of course, about the examined life. And you have your experiences, and that informs your perceptions and your knowledge. And, you know, there as a professor to profess, we can listen to those things. We can gain new insights because of that. Personally, I think it's uh, essential is there anything else that any of you want to say about being a philosophy student? I think that there will be departments that distribute this to prospective students. It's going to end up obviously being on the Y Radio archives, but also probably on philosophyisagreatmajor.com. Is there anything that the four of you would like to say that you think needs to be communicated to prospective philosophy students or current philosophy students? I think the most important thing is to remember that if you're passionate about it, it's important. I think that philosophy is one of those majors that really gets minimized. Um, when you have an interest in it, people tend to pick your brain on that. And it's not typically in a progressive or a supportive way. It's typically in a, you could be doing something that's so much more important than that way. And that's really discouraging. And I think that that's a really popular experience that a lot of incoming students have. I had that experience a thousand times before I actually declared my major as philosophy at UND. And I think a lot of people just don't realize, um, like we brought up earlier, those soft skills, how important those are, and that philosophy isn't something that's there to change your mind all the time. It's just education. It's, the same, it's similar to any other degree, but you're learning interpersonal skills. And I think that that's something that people forget, is you're learning how to talk, you're learning how to write, you're learning all those, those median skills that you need to be a functioning member of society, but you're also learning about nuances in other people's lives. You're learning empathy, sympathy. You're learning how to look at other people and listen to them. That's something that I think is so important is that philosophy gives students and it gives people a chance to just listen to another person. There is nothing that I think is more important. You cannot respect someone. You cannot like them. You cannot enjoy their company, but you can always listen to them. And philosophy gives students a platform and facilitates a space where students can just listen, whether it's the professor, whether it's to each other or themselves and develop an understanding for the world and for just the community you live in in general. That's completely different than what you had when you came. I'm only in my second semester and I've learned so much incredible information from such incredible people, Jack being one of them, that I just don't think I would have ever learned or even thought about if I wouldn't have done philosophy. And the thing is, 
you can do a whole lot with a philosophy degree. You can be a jack and you can teach. (laughs) (laughs) You could be jack or you could start your own (laughs) podcast or you could go to law school. There's a hundred different things you can do. And I think that it's just don't forget that you care. And when you come into it and people say, why would you do that? You could do this, this straight path instead. Remind yourself that you don't want the straight path, that you want to learn. I think that's what's most important. It's definitely scary to not take the straight path like we were speaking about earlier. Um, But one of my favorite parts about being a philosophy major is the readings, honestly. Mm -hmm. To me, each time I pick up a new author, I really love reading them, speaking their minds or writing their minds because there's really nothing more personal than that. You're literally getting a glimpse into how this person thinks, and I think that's just super cool. I suppose I could um, recite the uh, advice you offered me at my graduation years ago. Talk about the (laughs) elephant in the room, right? Be willing to engage in controversies. Philosophy certainly provides a space to do so, you know, and take that risk. Think for yourself, you know, much more truth and beauty will come to you that way. Well, I appreciate that. And that that little speech that – four-minute speech that I gave at, the, at um, the convocation has had a life of its own on the internet. And, and we just moved it back to YouTube, but it's, uh, um, it's always very satisfying to hear that. Um, I'm going to say something to the four of you, which is you have no idea how proud of you I am. What amazing people you are. I said to you, and I say to the students all the time, and I uh, for papers and things like that. And I said this to you guys before the show. I said, you don't have to act like you're smart because you're smart. You don't have to try to be smart because you're all smart. And I think students forget that, right? Students have this expectation of what they're supposed to sound like and what words they're supposed to use and how sophisticated they're supposed to be. And all that ends up doing is sounding like someone paid a premium subscription to a thesaurus online. (laughs) You guys are so smart and intuitive and interesting and you all have your own individual experiences. And I think a good education is the education that brings that out for everyone's benefit. And it's not just the four of you in this room. I have this experience over and over and over again with my students. And sometimes the quietest students will come in my office and talk to me for an hour and a half. And they'll just be the light of truth will shine out of them, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just – it's it's this job is a great gift for me. And this episode has been a tremendous gift for me because I just can't tell you how proud – him to have you all you here. See, I can't even speak. So how, <laughs> how proud I am to have all of you here and how proud I am, like a proud parent, to present the four of you to the world. So thank you, Maddie, Sam, Therese, and Sarah, for joining us all on Y Radio. Well, thank you, Jack. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. You have been listening to the five of us on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I will be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. 
Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I am Jack Russell Weinstein, and I was talking with four of my students about what it's like to be a philosophy student. I think a discussion that we ought to have more often and a discussion about studenting in general, the experience of growing and learning. There are very few true media images of what it means to be a student. The best portrayal of what it means to learn is actually in movies about sports, right? I long ago, I wrote an article about September 11th where I argued that the best depiction of learning that I ever saw was the Rocky movies because you'd see Rocky start off by not being able to do something and then he would try and he would fail and he would try and he would fail and he was convinced that he wouldn't get better and he was convinced that he wouldn't learn anything and he was convinced that nothing was happening and then you'd see him plateau and then you'd see him get better and you'd see him learn until by the end it took two movies, sorry for the spoiler, but he eventually won the fight and then he continued to learn. I would love there to be an account of what that looks like from a philosophy student's perspective, of seeing someone in action who has to unlearn what they've learned before so that they can learn all the things they need to learn now. But what makes philosophy so fascinating and so powerful is that once you've unlearned and learned – you can relearn the things you've unlearned. Now, I know that that was very confusing to follow, but here's what I mean. We all have our experiences and we all have our lives. And we've all been through these things that the meaning of which changes depending on our perspective. And so if someone comes along and changes your mind about something or defines your experience in a different way, you don't have to jettison the opinions that you had and you don't have to abandon the self-image and the perspectives that you shared with other people. Unlearn, learn, then relearn what you've unlearned and that makes you a whole person. The Platonic Socrates famously said philosophy is the process of learning to die. I don't find that very persuasive. I think philosophy is the process of learning to live better every moment of every day. And it's the process of recognizing that your life is just as important as everyone else's because your imagination, your intellect, your curiosity, your anxiety, your anger, your love, your paranoia are all valuable components of the self-understanding that you put together over time to be who you are. And a philosophy student is in a particular position to make that the focus of their interest while comparing their point of view with everyone else's. And all I can do is recommend that everyone else tries it 
And if you become a third of the student as the four people in this room, you will have been a success. With all of that said, if you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that a longer version, almost twice the length, is available online and as a podcast. Visit yradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. Rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all the usual social networks. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at yradioshow.org. Click Donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to the UND Alumni's Donation Portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. Thank you yet again to my guests, the folks at Prairie Public, especially Skip Wood, our long-suffering engineer. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. 